welcome one welcome all to the womance public access read-along of pride and prejudice by jane austen my name is morgan and i read the odd chapters my name is Isabel, and I read the even chapters. And this week, we are going to, or I, the odd chapter reader, am going to read to you chapter 11. But before we do that, what's happened so far, Isabel? What happened in chapter 10? Oh, man. In chapter 10, we find Darcy writing a letter to his beloved off-screen sister, and Caroline is just carolining it up. She can't stop complimenting him on the length of the letter, the size of his lettering, just everything. Length, and Darcy girth, isn't depth. <laughs> all of it. And Darcy's not having it, and we're all embarrassed for Caroline. And then there's a strange tete-a-tete between Bingley and Darcy uh, that was interrupting a very hot tete-a-tete between Darcy and Elizabeth, and then all come to agree that indeed Darcy is a good letter writer um, and that, you know, that's how shit goes. And then there's a walk on the boulevard where Darcy, Caroline, and Mrs. Hurst are all uh, walking abroad and they see the beautiful Miss Elizabeth and there's no room for her. And she's like, you guys look happy as you are, knowing full well that Mrs. Hurst and Caroline suck as conversationalists and she leaves Darcy in her dust. I know. And Caroline was talking mad shit on Lizzie right before they ran right into Right before. Her. Yeah. And Darcy's worried that maybe she heard because he's sensitive to those kinds of things. Oh, Darce. Oh, Darce. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to be embarrassed for the people around you. Ugh, it's the worst feeling. Hopefully the feeling gets better in this chapter 11. <sighs> Excuse me. <laughs> Making room for the words of Jane Austen. <laughs> chapter 11. When the ladies were moved after dinner, Elizabeth ran up to her sister, and seeing her well guarded from cold, attended her into the drawing room, where she was welcomed by her two friends with many professions of pleasure, and Elizabeth had never seen them so agreeable as they were during the hour which passed before the gentlemen appeared. Their powers of conversation were considerable. They could describe an entertainment with accuracy, relate an anecdote with humor, and laugh at their acquaintance with spirit. But when the gentleman entered, Jane was no longer the first object. Miss Bingley's eyes were instantly towards Darcy, and she had something to say to him before he had advanced many steps. He addressed himself directly to Miss Bennet with a polite congratulation. Congratulations on not dying. <laughs> Super stoked you ain't dead of that TB. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Hurst also made her a slight bow and said he was very glad, but diffuseness and warmth remained for Bingley's salutation. Boy Bingley, not girl Bingley. Mm -hmm. He was full of joy and attention. The first half hour was spent in piling up the fire, lest she should suffer from the change of room, and she removed at his desire to the other side of the fireplace that she might be farther from the door. He then sat down by her and talked scarcely to anyone else. Elizabeth, at work in the opposite corner, saw it all with great delight. When tea was over, Mr. Hurst reminded his sister-in-law of the card table, but in vain. 
She had obtained private intelligence that Mr. Darcy did not wish for cards, and Mr. Hurst soon found even his open petition rejected. She assured him that no one intended to play, and the silence of the whole party on the subject seemed to justify her. Mr. Hurst had therefore nothing to do but to stretch himself on one of the sofas and go to sleep. Darcy took up a book. Miss Bingley did the same. And Mrs. Hurst, principally occupied in playing with her bracelets and rings, joined now and then in her brother's conversation with Miss Bennet. Miss Bingley's attention was quite as much engaged in watching Mr. Darcy's progress through his book as in reading her own, and she was perpetually either making some inquiry or looking at his page. She could not win him, however, to any conversation. He merely answered her question and read on. At length, quite exhausted by the attempt to be amused with her own book, which she had only chosen because it was the second volume of his, she gave a great yawn and said, How pleasant it is to spend an evening in this way. I declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. <laughs> when I have a house of my own, I shall be miserable if I have not an excellent library. Oh. Darcy has an excellent library for readers who may have forgotten that detail. About Pemberley? Yes. He's got a giant fucking house, which also features a library. No one made any reply. She then yawned again, threw aside her book, and cast her eyes around the room in quest of some amusement. When hearing her brother mentioning a ball to Miss Bennet, she turned suddenly towards him and said, By the by, Charles, are you really serious in meditating a, a dance at Netherfield? It really does say meditating a dance at Netherfield. It does, indeed. I would advise you, before you determine on it, to consult the wishes of the present party. I am much mistaken if there are not some amongst us to whom a ball would be rather a punishment than a pleasure if you mean darcy cried her brother <laughs> he may go to bed if he chooses before it begins but as for the ball it is quite a settled thing and as soon as nichols has made white to soup enough i shall send round my cards <laughs> bingley can't help but bingley all over himself <laughs> making white soup I should like balls infinitely better, she replied, if they were carried on in a different manner. But there is something insufferably tedious in the usual process of such a meeting. It would surely be much more rational if conversation, instead of dancing, made the order of the day. Much more rational, my dear Caroline, I dare say, but it would not be near so much like a ball. <laughs> Miss Bingley made no answer and soon afterwards got up and walked about the room. Her figure was elegant, and she walked well, but Darcy, at whom it was all aimed, was still inflexibly studious. In the desperation of her feelings, she resolved on one effort more, and, turning to Elizabeth, said, "'Miss Eliza Bennet, let me persuade you to follow my example and take a turn about the room. I assure you it is very refreshing after sitting so long in one attitude.'" Elizabeth was surprised but agreed to it immediately. Miss Bingley succeeded no less in the real object of her civility. Mr. Darcy looked up. He was as much awake to the novelty of attention in that quarter as Elizabeth herself could be, and unconsciously closed his book. 
He was directly invited to join their party, but he declined it, observing that he could imagine but two motives for their choosing to walk up and down the room together, with either of which motives his joining them would interfere. What could he mean? She was dying to know what could be his meaning, and asked Elizabeth whether she could at all understand him. Not at all, was her answer, but depend on it, he means to be severe on us, and our surest way of disappointing him will be to ask nothing about it. Miss Bingley, however, was incapable of disappointing Mr. Darcy in anything, and persevered, therefore, in requiring an explanation of his two motives. I have not the smallest objection to explaining them, said he, as soon as she allowed him to speak. You either choose this method of passing the evening because you are in each other's confidence— and have secret affairs to discuss, or because you are conscious that your figures appear to the greatest advantage in walking. If the first, I should be completely in your way, and if the second, I can admire you much better as I sit by the fire. <gasps> Shocking, cried Miss Bingley. I never heard anything so abominable. How shall we punish him for such a speech? Nothing so easy, if you have but the inclination, said Elizabeth. We can all plague and punish one another, tease him, laugh at him. Intimate as you are, you must know how it is to be done. But upon my honor, I do not. I do assure you that my intimacy has not yet taught me that. Tease calmness of temper and presence of mind. No, no, I, I feel he may defy us there. And as to laughter, we will not expose ourselves, if you please, by attempting to laugh without a subject. Mr. Darcy may hug himself. Mr. Darcy is not to be laughed at, cried Elizabeth. That is an uncommon advantage, and uncommon I hope it will continue, for it would be a great loss to me to have such an acquaintance. I dearly love a laugh. Miss Bingley, said he, has given me credit for more than can be. The wisest and the best of men, nay, the wisest and the best of their actions, may be rendered ridiculous by a person whose first object in life is a joke. <laughs> Certainly, replied Elizabeth. There are such people, but I hope I am not one of them. I hope I never ridicule what is wise or good. Follies and nonsense, whims and inconsistencies do divert me, I own, and I laugh at them whenever I can, but these, I suppose, are precisely what you are without. Perhaps that is not possible for any one. But it has been the study of my life to avoid those weaknesses which often expose a strong understanding to ridicule, such as vanity and pride. Yes, vanity is a weakness indeed, but pride, where there is a real superiority of mind, pride will always <laughs> be under good regulation. <laughs> That's right, Mr. Darcy. You tell her. <laughs> <That's really good. laughs> Elizabeth turned away to hide a smile. <laughs> You're so did Isabeau. <laughs> Your examination of Mr. Darcy is over, I presume, said Miss Bingley. And pray, what is the result? I am perfectly convinced by it that Mr. Darcy has no defect. He owns it himself without disguise. No, said Darcy, I have made no such pretension. I have faults enough, but they are not, I hope, of understanding. My temper I dare not vouch for. It is, I believe, too little yielding. Certainly too little for the convenience of the world. 
I cannot forget the follies and vices of others as soon as I ought, nor their offenses against myself. My feelings are not puffed about with every attempt to move them. My temper would perhaps be called resentful. My good opinion, once lost, is lost forever. That is a failing indeed, cried Elizabeth. Implacable resentment is a shade in a character. But you have chosen your fault well. I really cannot laugh at it. You are safe from me. There is, I believe, in every disposition, a tendency to some particular evil, a natural defect, which not even the best education can overcome. And your defect is a propensity to hate everybody. And yours, he replied with a smile, is, will, is to willfully misunderstand them. Do let us have a little music, cried Miss Bingley, tired of a conversation in which she had no share. Louisa, would you not mind in waking Mr. Hurst? Her sister made not the smallest objection, and the pianoforte was opened, and Darcy, after a few moments' recollection, was not sorry for it. He began to feel the danger of paying Elizabeth too much attention. Wah, wah, wah. I would say chapter 11, I, I mean, there's like not much going on that didn't exactly happen in chapter 10. That's super fair. I can see exactly why in the um, Keira Knightley version they collapsed these two scenes. Yeah, I think that's a really good directorial move. But, you know, Austin has proven a very smart, talented writer. So I wonder why leave them both in and like right next to each other. I think in this one, it's just to further humiliate Caroline. Like, there's the whole thing about books. That's a pretty good dig. Yeah, the book does not like Caroline. Maybe something happened in Austin's real life where her Caroline cipher got her again. So she had to come and get revenge in her text. Not that not that writers do that. <laughs> but maybe that's it. But I, I did see, like, a moment where I was like, oh, Caroline's, like, trying other methods. You know, perhaps she wants him to, like, physically compare them. Mm-hmm. And perhaps she wanted to point out, like, it, it feels like they were kind of on the cusp of, like, genuinely disagreeing. Or I guess they always are because Lizzie seems to have her guard up. Mm -hmm. Like, he's the only one flirting. Like, it reminds me of um, when Jane would be in Mr. Rochester's little fire cubby. <laughs> yes, that is a really, really good comparison. And he would be, like, complimenting obtusely mm -hmm. her drawings and she'd be like why is this guy giving me such a hard time <laughs> i mean what's so funny about that is like jane is so obtuse but like this like in this book the narrator knows exactly what's happening like when their narrator says she could not win him comma however to any conversation and just that she could not win him functions both in like the broader sense but also in this like flirtatious yeah. draw out and yeah. so then like this is just a series of amazing bombshells like and they're not even bombshells because you're right we already know all this information it's just it's such a delicious rehash so it's clear to me that the it's clear to me that Jane really liked deriding Caroline. Like, she's just having a really good time. And I think, like, these secret flirtations between Darcy and Elizabeth are also kind of worthwhile. Oh, yeah. And also his fault, you know, he does really, he knows himself 
And he does call it a fault, even though I think he's kind of grandstanding a little bit, like thou dost protest too much. You know, when he says, I'm, I understand that my temper is uh, too little yielding. I think that's a point of pride for him, even though he understands that like it's inconvenient for him and other people and other people don't like it about him, which is why he picks it as his fault. I was like, yeah, you like yourself. You like yourself, Darcy. <laughs> Bingley is also very funny. Um, I just watched Fire Island. Have you seen that on Hulu? No. It's a uh, gay Pride and Prejudice. And one thing that I will say is that Bingley is the most consistent. Charles Bingley, boy Bingley, is the most consistent character throughout every adaptation of Jane Austen I've ever seen. He's always this puppy-eyed, earnest, beautiful, boyish man. Mm -hmm. And um, same goes for Fire Island. Everyone is obviously different. And it's very sweet. And his Bingley is just like the Bingleyest Bingley. So whenever Bingley speaks, I'm always like, God damn. <laughs> you know, I have to say, though, like, through reading this book, I think we always discover new things about texts, even the ones that we're familiar with. And in this reading, I'm kind of starting to see Bingley as, like, not a golden retriever. Like, mm -hmm. pretty dang agential. And agential in the way that he's seeking out his own kind of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I have a suspicion why adaptations like movies and TV shows tend to try to make him guileless because you have to kind of like excuse his behavior for reasons later on. Yeah, I think that's true. And what's interesting to me about this is like Jane Austen doesn't need to excuse his behavior because relying on someone like Darcy to say like this isn't a good match for you is enough of a reason like that would have been understood by the audiences at the time and I don't think needs more of a rationale but for us more modern audiences we're like that sucks Bingley doesn't know his own mind and it's like mm, Bingley does and he trusts Dar he trusts Darcy's judgment yeah on something big like this I'm like, why wouldn't you? Yeah, and I think it's also significant in this chapter that he's saying, like, I know Darcy doesn't like balls. I like balls, and I want to have a ball. Like, he will defy him. Yeah, he's like, Darcy can go to bed. Darcy's an adult. <laughs> I do what I want, and I think that's a little bit too complex, <laughs> maybe, yeah. to forgive, for like, especially for, like, a non-central love story. Mm-hmm. It's a non-central love story that also functions as, like, a hinge point in the main love story, which is an interesting piece of the plot. Because, like, yeah. Darcy and Elizabeth can't have an obstacle without Jane and Bingley being broken up. Spoiler alert, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert from 1819 or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I do want to put, like... I do want to put this on our, like, pin board of themes to return to, which is, like, the stakes of the forgiveness that has to happen mm -hmm. in our ending. And I think, like, these repeated, like, a lot of character internality is being built in these kind of repetitive drawing room chapters. Yeah, I think that's true. But I don't know. I don't know yet if I'm if I'm willing to, like, I want to see how it plays out in this reading because I've never noticed it before. But yeah. 
Yeah, I think putting forgiveness on the pin board. I also want to think about like onion forgiveness, like how many dominoes of forgiveness have to function for all of the forgiveness to work. Yeah. It's actually pretty complex. Well, I think we've officially rung these, uh, in my book, four pages dry. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so do join us next time as Isabeau reads to me chapter 12. Until then, loosen your prides. And your prejudices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.